Chapter 43 of History of Philosophy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of Philosophy by William Turner. Fourth Period of Scholasticism Birth of Occam to Taking of Constantinople, 1300 to 1453. The causes of the decay of scholastic philosophy were both internal and external. The internal causes are to be found in the condition of scholastic philosophy at the beginning of the 14th century. The great work of Christian syncretism had been completed by the masters of the preceding period. Revelation and science had been harmonized. Contribution had been levied on the pagan philosophies of Greece and Arabia, and whatever truth these philosophies had possessed had been utilized to form the basis of a rational exposition of Christian revelation. The efforts of Roger Bacon and of Albert the Great to reform scientific method had failed. The sciences were not cultivated. There was, therefore, no source of development, and nothing was left for later scholastics except to dispute as to the meaning of principles to comment on the text of this master or of that, and to subtilize to such an extent that scholasticism soon became a synonym for captious quibbling. The great Thomistic principle that in philosophy the argument from authority is the weakest of all arguments was forgotten. Aristotle, St. Thomas, or Scotus became the criterion of truth, and as Solomon whose youthful wisdom had astonished the world, profaned his old age by the worship of idols, the philosophy of the schools in the days of its decadence turned from the service of truth to prostrate itself before the shrine of a master. Dialectic, which in the 13th century had been regarded as the instrument of knowledge, now became an object of study for the sake of display. And to this fault of method was added a fault of style, an uncouthness and barbarity of terminology which bewilder the modern reader. The religious orders, which had given to scholasticism its ablest masters, now devoted all their attention to fomenting the Thomistic and Scotistic controversy, thus frittering away on matters of trifling importance the gifts which should have been devoted to the more serious task of meeting the difficulties that sprang up on every side as the modern era approached. The external causes of the decay of scholasticism were, in the first place, the political conditions of the time. The 14th century was a period of strife between the secular and the spiritual power, of rebellion of princes, bishops, and priests against the authority of the Holy See, and of contests between the rival claimants for the chair of Peter. Religion seemed to lose its restraining power, and moral depravity, sorcery, and occult science corrupted that true sense of the superiority of things spiritual which characterized the 13th century. The universities, too, which had contributed so much to the success of scholasticism, and had received so much from it in return, now began to bring discredit on the scholastic system. At Paris, the course of study for the degrees in theology was shortened, and academic honors were distributed with more freedom than discretion, 
mere youths, impuberes et imberbes, being through favor awarded the title of master. Add to this that everywhere throughout Europe, institutions inferior to the great universities were accorded the right to confer degrees which had hitherto been the monopoly of Paris and Oxford. In the general relaxation of the spirit of serious study, there appeared a phase of scholastic philosophy which may be said to have been inspired by the principle commonly known as Occam's razor, ansia non sunt multiplicanda sine necessitate. In a spirit of protest against the extreme formalism of the Scotists, who multiplied metaphysical entities to an alarming degree, the new philosophy aimed at simplicity. Soon, however, it carried the process of simplification to the extent of discarding as useless all serious metaphysical and psychological speculation. It substituted dialectic for metaphysics, advocated nominalism, and ended in something dangerously near to sensism and skepticism. The chief representative of this phase of scholasticism is William of Ockham. Before his time, however, the tendencies which resulted in his philosophy appeared in the doctrines of Durandus and Aureolus. Chapter 43 Predecessors of Occam Durandus Life Durandus of Saint-Pourcin, Doctor Resolutissimus, was born at Saint-Pourcin in Auvergne towards the end of the 13th century. He joined the order of St. Dominic and was at first a most ardent defender of the doctrines of St. Thomas. About the year 1313, he taught theology at Paris. After spending some years in Rome as master of the sacred palace during the reign of John XXII, he returned to France and occupied successively the sees of Limoges, Puy, and Meaux. He tells us himself that he was Bishop of Puy. The year 1332 is the most probable date of Durandus's death. Sources The most important of Durandus's works is entitled Super Sententias Theologicas Petri Lombardi, Commentariorum Libri Quator. It was published in Paris in 1550. Trittenheim mentioned several minor treatises, cf. Prefatio to above edition. Doctrines By his independence of thought and his advocacy of certain principles which his contemporaries considered dangerous, Durandus earned the title of Doctor Resolutissimus. Still, he never exceeded the limits of orthodoxy. Indeed, the independence which he advocated and which he formulated in the principle Naturalis philosophia non est scire quid Aristoteles aut alii philosophi senserint, sed quid habiet veritas rerum, had been professed before his time, and formulated almost in the same words by St. Thomas and the other great schoolmen. Such independence of thought was recognized as the birthright of every philosopher, and the fact that Durandus exercised this right without incurring ecclesiastical censure is the best refutation of the calumny that the Church refused to tolerate independent thinking as long as she could enforce obedience to her commands.
Durandus manifested his independence, one, in rejecting the sensible and intelligible species. The reason which he adduces is a priori rather than empirical, and is based on a misconception of the scholastic doctrine of species. In his commentary on the books of sentences, he first gives his opinion that the doctrine of species was introduced to explain sense perception and was transferred to the explanation of intellectual knowledge. He then proceeds to criticize the doctrine of sensible species as follows. Omne illut per quod tamquam per representativum potentia cognitiva fertur in alterum est primo cognitum, sed species coloris in oculo, non est primo cognita, seu visa ab eo, immo nullo modo est visa ab eo, ergo, per ipsam, tamquam per representativum, non fertur in aliquid aliut. Now, this argument is simply relevant. The predecessors of Durandus, so far from teaching that the species is a medium representativum, maintained, on the contrary, that it is merely a medium by which the object becomes present to the subject, what may be called a medium presentativum, that is to say, a medium communicationis. It is, owing to a similar misunderstanding, that later nominalists and so many modern writers regard the scholastic doctrine of species as untenable. 2. In rejecting the active intellect. This follows as a natural consequence from the rejection of the species. Durandus teaches that there is no more need for an active intellect than of an active sense. Here again, he misunderstands the scholastic doctrine. There is need of an active intellect because, although the object of intellectual knowledge, the universal nature, exists in the world of sense phenomena, it exists there clothed in material conditions of which it must be divested before becoming actually intelligible, and the task of separating the universal from these material conditions is the work of the active intellect. 3. In his advocacy of nominalism. This follows from the rejection of the active intellect. Durandus teaches that the object of the intellect is the individual as it exists, and that the universal exists nowhere outside the mind. Universale non est primum objectum intellectus, nec preexistit intellectioni, sed est aliquid formatum per operationem intelligendi, esse universale, esse genus, vel speciem, dicuntur ensia rationis. Durandus, however, does not openly profess nominalism, that is, he does not teach expressly, as the followers of Occam do, that the only universality is the universality of names. For, in his doctrine of the principle of individuation, Durandus teaches that the principle of individuation is not distinct from the specific nature of the individual, since everything is individuated by actual existence. Non oportet preter naturam et principia nature querere principia individui. 5. 
in his rejection of divine cooperation with secondary causes. This is the doctrine by which Durandus places himself in most pronounced opposition to the current teaching of his time. The scholastics of the 13th century unanimously taught that God is not only creator and preserver of all finite things, but also cooperator in all the actions of secondary causes. Durandus maintains that all the actions of the creature proceed from God inasmuch as it is God who gave creatures the power to act. But he denies that there is an immediate influxus of the Creator in the actions of the creature. Non oportet quo Deus immediate coagat, sed solum mediate, conservando naturam et virtutem cause secunde. Deus non est causa actionum liberi arbitrii, nise quie liberum arbitrium ab ipso est et conservatur. The theological doctrines of Durandus are still more at variance with current teaching, and on some points his dogmatic opinions cannot without difficulty be reconciled with Catholic belief. Historical Position If Dan's Codus is the Kant, Durandus is the luck of scholastic philosophy. His treatment of the most serious problems of psychology and metaphysics is marked by superficiality. He seemingly took no pains to make himself acquainted with the doctrines which he criticized, and his own solution of many a problem stops short of the points where the real problem begins. Simplicity, even at the expense of thoroughness, appears to have been his motto. Aureolus Life. Peter Doriol, Aureolus, Dr. Facundus, was born about the end of the 13th century at Toulouse. In 1318, he became Master of Theology at the University of Paris. In the following year, he was made Provincial of the Franciscans in Aquitaine. In 1321, he was promoted to the Metropolitan See of Aix. He died in 1322. Sources The works of Aureolus, Quod Libeta and Commentaria in Libro Sententiarum were published at Rome, 1596-1605, in four folio volumes. Doctrines Aureolus was at first a Scotist. Later, however, Actuated, apparently, by the idea which inspired Durandus to simplify scholasticism, he arrived at conclusions which are practically identical with those of the doctor most resolute. He denied the reality of universals, the existence of species and of the active intellect, the distinction between essence and existence, and the distinction between the soul and its faculties. Referring to the doctrine of species, he says, Unde patet quo modo res ipse conspiciuntur in mente, et illut quot intuemur non est forma alia specularis, sed ipsamet res habens esse apparens, et hoc est mentis conceptus, sive notitia objectiva. The expression forma specularis and the word idolum, which occurs in the same article, 
both being used to designate the species, show that Aureolus was as far as Durandus was from understanding the role which the great schoolmen assigned to the species. Historical Position The doctrines of Aureolus, as well as those of Durandus, prepared the way for the outspoken conceptualism of Occam. End of chapter 43